Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, let me congratulate IPS on your 35th anniversary. And thank you for inviting me to join this session on revisiting housing. Now, I, I have quite a thick stack of paper with me, uh, but please don't worry, it's not going to be as long a speech as it might look. It's just that I have to cope with long-sightedness, so the fonts are very large. Let me start by an experience I had in April this year. I received a delegation of visiting MPs from the UK, and they came to Singapore because they were interested to know more about our public housing policy. And I was quite struck by a remark they made, which was, in London, where there are jobs, it's hard to find affordable housing, especially for the young. In places outside of London, where there is more affordable housing, it's harder to find jobs. This is a conundrum that applies not only to the UK, but housing markets in general, where there are few restrictions on buying and selling properties. That's because the prices tend to reflect where people want to live, and people want to live where there are good jobs and economic prospects. And this is true whether people prefer to rent or to buy. When rents go up, because the yield goes up, so will the asset price, which is the home price. People move to and want to remain in cities where there is growth, but they also find themselves spending a large part of their income on housing, either on rent or mortgage payments. A commonly used measure for housing affordability is the ratio of median home price to the median annual to the median annual income, or HPI for short. The Urban Land Institute has an Asia-Pacific Home Attainability Index, uh, and uh, there's a 2023 edition. This index covers 45 cities, and it shows that the HPI of major cities like Beijing or Tokyo can go up to something like 29 times. It's not easy to be a city that is both attractive to live in and one which offers affordable housing to most, unless considerable restrictions are placed on the buying and selling of housing. Singapore is a city, but we are also a country. And since we are without natural resources, the government has to focus on economic development and job creation in Singapore. And this means we are committed to making Singapore a vibrant and attractive place to live in. At the same time, we have no countryside with lower-cost housing that our people can consider leaving the city for. So we must ensure affordable homes for Singaporeans, especially for younger home buyers as well as households with lower incomes. The government recognized from the outset that housing cannot be left entirely to private sector provision and market forces. We intervene in the housing market, most significantly through the provision of an extensive public housing program. Our public housing program developed very early on a focus on home ownership, not just the provision of shelter, because we believe that this gives Singaporeans a tangible stake in our country. The rights of HDB ownership include being able to sell one's flat in the open market including to some buyers who might not be eligible to buy a new flat from the HDB, or those who have more housing needs or who have specific preferences, such as location. 
the resale of HDB flats was introduced in 1971. Compared to selling back to HDB, owners can realize the market value of their property as price is determined by what the buyer is willing to pay. So beyond consuming it as a home, a homeowner has the option of selling his flat to a willing buyer or monetizing it by means of renting out their rooms or the whole flat or taking part in the lease buyback scheme. Prices in the resale market do fluctuate and may even sometimes fall, but they have generally moved upwards over the past decades in line with economic conditions and growth in wages. This is an important way for HDB homeowners to share in the fruits of Singapore's economic success. It's especially meaningful for those who are no longer economically active, such as seniors and retirees. So our public housing policy is part of our answer to the conundrum that I mentioned earlier in the speech, which is to make Singapore attractive to live in while also offering affordable housing to citizens. It is a two-pronged approach. There's subsidies and grants from the government to ensure affordability for buyers, coupled with an active resale market. The resale market provides a robust way for determining the value of flats, while new flats are based on buyers' incomes and affordability not to recover cost. We have been using the HPI to track how affordable public housing has been in Singapore. Another way of doing so is via the Mortgage Servicing Ratio, or MSR, and that measures the proportion of income used to service housing mortgages. The HPI and MSR of four-room new flats in non-mature estates and their historical equivalents have generally remained at around four to five times and 25% or less, respectively, and that's no different from 40 years ago as prices of new flats rose in tandem with incomes. We have made many adjustments to public housing policy over time to keep pace with changes in citizens' aspirations and market conditions. Now, where allocation of new flats is concerned, we've certainly made adjustments. We went from a balloting system to the registration for flat system in 1994 and to the built-to-order or BTO system in 2002. And so well-known is the BTO system now that people popularly refer to HDB flats as BTOs. We have also sought to provide in-between housing products for those whose incomes might be higher but find private housing out of reach, such as the former HUDC scheme, and now we have executive condominiums or ECs. These adjustments were made while HDB was constantly improving built quality as well as the connectivity and amenities in our heartlands. We are now in a period of heightened anxiety over housing prices and affordability. And there are many reasons for this. Global inflation, geopolitical conflict and tensions, uncertain economic outlook, and also a sense of disequilibrium as economies and entire industry sectors recover unevenly from the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Locally, we are still in the process of overcoming the construction delays caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, which in turn led to short-term housing shortage 
and a rapid rise in resale prices and rents. We recently went through a two-day parliamentary debate about housing affordability and accessibility in February. But concerns about housing prices persist, and understandably so, because the global and regional economic outlook has not yet improved, while the measures we have taken to address imbalances in the local housing market have yet to take full effect. These concerns continue to drive discussions and suggestions to revisit our housing model, all with the hope of making BTO and or resale flat prices significantly lower and preferably within a short time. I believe many who are here in the audience, not just my fellow panelists, come ready to share your ideas or at least you want to hear what is being considered and why. What are some of these suggestions to cool housing prices? I think they tend to be along the following lines. One approach is limit demand and or limit liquidity. The government has, in fact, been doing this periodically over the years when circumstances warrant, such as adjusting the loan-to-value or LTV ratio, and also recently, more recently, adjusting the credit assessment uh, flaw uh, in terms of interest rate assumptions. Another approach is to question the basis of valuation altogether, uh, especially the valuation of land. Now, based on this argument, if land cost doesn't need to be counted, then public housing can be made available at much lower prices. The government has addressed this issue of why land cost cannot be at zero over the years, and most recently during the February debate in Parliament. I don't propose to go over this in detail here. But let me mention a third approach, which calls for a review of the balance between housing as a consumption good and housing as a form of investment. Now, this call to revisit the balance between these two roles of housing would, when you come down to it, involve more changes and restrictions on resale and various forms of monetization, again in the hope of dampening prices. There is a most radical version of this, which we have heard from time to time, which is just do away with the resale market altogether, and uh, for people who no longer need their flats, just sell back to HDB. But there are uh, more moderate versions of this, and essentially uh, it's about fettering the resale market in the hope that prices will also come down. And I'm also aware that um, my fellow panelists, whom we're going to hear from later, I think they've been pondering the question of housing as investment versus housing as consumption. And I'm sure during the panel discussion or the Q&A session, we might hear suggestions for the government to quote-unquote, move away from public housing as investment. So I'm glad for this opportunity to set out some views here first. Public housing is focused on owner occupation, and this means using the HDB primarily as a home. But there is also flexibility, which is part and parcel of ownership. For example, HDB has relaxed the rules on the use of flats as home offices. 
and many HDB homeowners have come to view the ability to monetize through renting out of rooms or whole flat subletting and participating in the resale market as important elements of ownership. The government sees no reason to prevent flat prices from appreciating in line with economic conditions because the benefits do accrue to homeowners. But we consider volatile price fluctuations to be undesirable. Sudden and significant drops in prices are clearly detrimental, but we are also concerned when HDB resale prices rise too quickly because we do need to minimize distortions in the market, such as windfall effects, and I'll speak a little bit more about this later. And very importantly, subsidies and grants, which we deploy to make housing affordable to a wide range of buyers, must be at a level that Singapore taxpayers can afford over the long term. And we certainly discourage speculation. HDB will adjust policies to strengthen the owner-occupation intent of public housing when necessary, for example, investigating claims of BTO flats being sold in violation of the minimum occupation period, or tightening rules on the non-selection of BTO, which we're going to do from the, the sale exercise this August onwards. Now, the theme for this session is revisiting housing. And I would like to speak about some of the policy parameters that we have been revisiting because, after all, housing policy regularly undergoes adjustments. So let me begin with the windfall effect that I've just mentioned. This windfall effect arises when eligible home buyers who were lucky enough to obtain particularly sought-after units sell them in the open market after the minimum occupation period, or MOP, and then realize large financial gains. There is a large difference between how the market values such flats and what the government prices them at in order to make them affordable to more buyers. This windfall effect causes unhappiness among equally eligible buyers who did not manage to obtain such units in the first place and motivates even more people to apply for flats in highly desirable locations, even if they don't really need one to live in. Another effect that we were concerned about is the likelihood for highly valued HB neighbourhoods to stratify along income lines, otherwise known as gentrification, once the units start to change hands in the open market after MOP ends. Now, the subsidies that are embedded in the initial prices set by HDB might allow less well-off buyers to be the first owners of such units. But if there's no intervention in the resale markets, then these units may transact at very high market prices that can only be afforded by high-income buyers. And this will make our neighbourhoods and some of our HDB heartlands less inclusive. Some of you would have heard about the prime location housing or PLH model that we have recently introduced, and it seeks to address this through measures that include a longer MOP, restrictions on who the owner can sell the unit onto subsequently, and also recovery of the additional subsidy that was required to price the new flats in the reach of more buyers. These PLH requirements 
did add significantly to the existing restrictions on resale that apply to all HDB flats, and some might consider these to be fetters on the open market. Indeed, we did not take these decisions lightly, but we felt it was important to make these changes to strengthen the owner-occupation intent of public housing and keep neighbourhoods as inclusive and as long as possible. Now, the next area we are revisiting concerns housing typologies. Many Singaporeans will be familiar with the HDB uh, standard configurations, whether it is three-room flat, four-room flat, or five-room flat. And these flat types have served the needs of the majority of Singaporeans well over the last 50 years. However, as our economies and our lifestyles evolve, housing aspirations also change. Coupled with an aging population, how we design our flats would need to change. Keeping to the status quo is not going to fully meet the needs of our people. So public housing must continue to evolve. And one example of how we have evolved is through the introduction of a new housing topology, the Community Care Apartments, or CCA, and this was introduced in 2021. These CCA flats are tailored to meet seniors' needs with senior-friendly design and fittings inside the flat, and communal spaces for seniors to participate in social activities and interact with their neighbours. But, and this is uh, a particularly new feature of CCA compared to our existing typologies, these flats are bundled with care services that can be customised based on the seniors' needs to help them remain healthy and active as they age. We are heartened that the initial response to CCA flats has been positive and we will continue refining the model as we gain experience. Our public housing reflects our commitment to be pro-family, but the government is also aware of the aspirations of singles. Compared to before, there is greater demand for housing from singles. As part of MND's housing conversations with Singaporeans, we have started engaging singles, among other groups like first-timers and seniors, to hear their views on to hear their views and aspirations on housing. And they have given us interesting and creative ideas, such as considering how we can meet the needs of single parents better, or designing new flats with more compact personal spaces and larger communal areas in a public housing context akin to co-living spaces. Or could we perhaps enable intergenerational housing, a model that has been implemented overseas? We will take in various ideas as we chart the next chapter of our public housing story. There is another area that we are revisiting, and that has to do with how we think of HDB estates. Our estates are currently classified into mature estates or non-mature estates. To many Singaporeans, th this has become shorthand for how well-equipped with facilities and amenities a town is and the desirability of having a flat there. We see this being reflected in the prices of flats in non-mature and mature estates, where flats in mature estates generally fetch higher prices. The classification has policy implications too. Eligibility conditions and allocation policies for new flats, such as the proportion of flats that we prioritise for first-timer families, are currently tied to this classification. We know, however, that the distinction between mature estates and non-mature estates is not always very clear. 
Some locations within non-mature estates feature amenities and connectivity that are as good as older town centres. Conversely, some locations within the boundaries of mature estates may be less sought after because of site-specific characteristics. The government has therefore been rethinking the relevance of the mature estate, non-mature estate classification. This will have an impact policy, this will have an impact on policy because the current classification guides how we focus our efforts on making public housing affordable and accessible. And we hope to share more on this soon. I've shared some policy perimeters that we are revisiting. But even as we do this, there are immediate concerns that the government has been working on, whether it is about catching up on our BTO building program, meeting the strong demand for public housing, or addressing high rental prices. As of May 2023, HDB has successfully delivered over 60% of the delayed BTO projects over the last two years and HDB is working hard to deliver the remaining projects. We're also on track in ramping up on our BTO supply by launching up to 100,000 flats from 2021 to 2025, including more flats with shorter waiting times. We also hear the concerns of younger home buyers who urgently need interim housing before their BTO flats are ready and who feel daunted by the current state of the rental market. Previously, we shared that HDB will be increasing the supply of Parenthood Provisional Housing Scheme, or PPHS, flats from 800 units in 2021 to 1,800 units in 2023. I'm happy to share that we have achieved this target and will in fact supply close to 2,000 PPHS flats by the end of this year. And as a result of this doubling of supply, PPHS application rates have come down significantly from over 20 times in 2021 to around three times now. But we understand that buyers who booked their flats in the past two years have experienced longer waiting times because of the delays caused by COVID. So HDB is hard at work to increase the PPHS supply further, doubling it again to 4,000 units over the next two years. We hope these efforts will bring about some relief to the young families and to support their parenthood journeys. Nonetheless, we recognize that there is sustained demand for such flats while supply remains limited. Hence, we are studying ways to further maximize the available pool of PPHS flats, such as requiring flat sharing for the larger PPHS units. This will allow more home buyers waiting, awaiting their HB flats to benefit from subsidized market rental. There will also be almost 40,000 home completions across the public and private residential markets, the highest number of home completions in the last five years. Households that are currently renting on a temporary basis while waiting for the completion of their new homes will likely vacate their units, thereby easing the pressure on the rental market. We have started to see some of these efforts take effect. For the most recent BTO launch in May that concluded last week, the median first-timer application rate for three-room or larger flats was around 2.3 times, and this is closer to pre-COVID levels. 
HDB resale prices also saw the smallest increase last quarter in more than two years. Ladies and gentlemen, we are entering a new phase of our nation building amidst a broader economic environment that remains extremely uncertain. The global economy, according to some analysts, may experience a shallow downturn in the coming quarters. Mortgage rates are likely to stay elevated for some time, and we therefore encourage households to exercise financial prudence. Being core to the Singapore way of life, our public housing policy will need to be revisited and adjusted regularly. I want to thank IPS for the opportunity to speak on what we are revisiting and look forward to the panel discussion and Q&A. Thank you. Thank you, SMS Sim, for providing us a very broad sweep of housing issues. We are very fortunate today to have uh, two profs, one in economics and one in real estate, to continue the discussion. So without further ado, can I invite uh, Walter to address the audience? Walter? Sure. Uh, thank you, Kong Chong, and uh, thank you, SMS, for actually laying out the uh, framework of uh, government housing policy and bringing us to where we are today. So, so I thought I would start my remarks by uh, recalling a quote from a great man, of course, and I'm putting this quote out there because I think it encapsulates two things I want to interrogate a bit in our discussion of public housing policy. And I think the two core concepts that encapsulated in this quote are first, that owner-occupied public housing is what gives Singaporeans a stake in society. So that's one part. And the other core concept is that this shared historic experience of living together in own public housing is what is going to give Singapore society its roots. Okay? So why do I talk about that? That's because I want to outline today how our shared historic experience of public housing has actually created somewhat of a paradox today, which is that we have a very successful a high-quality owner-occupied public housing program, but that program is also frequently criticized by Singaporeans for failing to meet their expectations. And so to understand these expectations, uh, we have to understand a bit about where these historic economic uh, contexts actually come from. And that's because most of us don't make judgments about our economic and social conditions in a vacuum, right? What we actually do is we think about our experiences in the past and we judge what's happening to us today using that context. Even experts do this. For example, uh, central bankers who live through very high inflationary experiences are actually much more hawkish hawkish on inflation, even though they're actually experts. So this affects all of us, okay? So I thought I'd first start by taking us through the shared historic experience of how public housing transformed the quality of housing for Singaporeans. Uh, now, the earliest census data we have on this is from 1970. The census before that didn't really capture housing, although uh, Go Keng Sui's earlier social survey of Singapore did look at it. So in 1960, about 9% of Singaporeans lived in public housing, according to HDB, which was set up in that year. And you can see that in 1970, uh, most Singaporeans lived in crowded, lower-quality housing. The public housing program was just starting to ramp up at that point. Okay? But when we go to 1990, rapid HDB development had actually moved the majority of Singaporeans into modern HDB flats. 
Okay, and then if you go to 2010, you see that HDB uh, households during that era were able to enjoy progressive upgrading, right? The proportion of larger flats, four and five room, grew uh, proportionately, and the private housing market, in particular the condo and private flat market, also expanded dramatically. Uh, landed housing, by the way, has remained pretty much the same all throughout this era. Okay, so now let's take a look at 2020, right? The most recent census. When you see 2020, you notice a couple of things. First, growth in the average physical size of HDB flats has actually stalled somewhat. And this is also has to do, of course, with, as SMS noted, uh, the changing needs of Singaporeans and building uh, smaller flats to meet the needs of the aged and so on, right? But you also see that upper-income households in Singapore have also increasingly turned to private property. You can see the proportion there has grown quite significantly. Okay? So the point of discussing all of this is to illustrate that our capacity to upgrade housing is actually now up against some constraints that didn't exist in the past. Singaporeans have lived through many years of being able to enjoy constant upgrading of housing quality and size but it does not look like we can actually deliver the same gains to the middle class today because we're up against limited land for redevelopment, especially in prime areas. We're also up against very high land values today, which necessitates a more economic use of that land, which means, on average, trying to not build too large places if people don't need them. And of course, the entry-level price of private housing is now being pushed beyond the reach of much of the middle class because of these factors. Okay? So, that's part of the context. The other thing I wanted to talk about is uh, to take us a bit through the experience of using housing as a wealth builder, right? Okay, so first, what are the facts on the wealth of Singaporeans? Uh, Credit Suisse Wealth Report says the median Singapore adult held about 93,000 US dollars in assets. MAS and DOS balance sheet data says it's about 450,000 Singapore dollars in net worth for the average, not the median, and of that, maybe about 180,000 in net residential property assets. This includes both HDB and private housing. So by any measure, Singaporeans are very, very wealthy, internationally speaking. They're richer on average and on the median uh, than residents of any other region in the world globally, except maybe North America. And this data is consistent with Singaporeans' everyday belief that housing is a key part of building wealth, right? But let's interrogate this a bit more, right? What, what are Singaporeans' lived experiences of HDB as an asset and a store of wealth? And what will they expect out of housing assets in the future because of that lived experience? Okay, so to interrogate this question a bit more, I think the key is that we have to understand the relative performance of wealth accumulation via work income, okay, versus wealth accumulation via the housing asset appreciation. So I think that's the key thing here we have to understand. And to, to, as a basis for this exercise, I'm going to be looking at median income growth versus HDB resale price growth over the last 20 years. I would have liked to look beyond this earlier than this, but good data isn't really that available on that. So what you see from the last 20 years on this slide is that HDB resale prices have generally tracked changes in median household income, indeed, as SMS said earlier, right? There might be periods where deviations occur, and during those periods, policy has to act, people get very unhappy, but in general, that's the trajectory. Okay, so what have I done with this data? I've tried to estimate 
the wealth share of HDB assets for the median household, if the median household were to start in 2003 and make a major HDB property investment. And so with this simulation, the idea is, in 2003, your median household buys the most expensive BTO flat they can afford, which would be about a five-room flat price at around $250,000 back then. Uh, and they don't use grants and discounts because they just want to examine the pure equity value of the flat uh, without any additional government policy for now. So the affordability is going to be based on taking out a 20-year loan at the 30% mortgage servicing ratio and at the HDB concessionary loan rate. Now, besides investing in the house, the other thing the household is going to do is they're going to enjoy uh, great gains in their median household income over time, and we're also going to have them invest their remaining private savings in a risk-free financial asset which earns the standard CPF retirement account rate, okay, 4% per annum. Okay, so what's the result of this exercise? Well, if you look at the red line, which is the HDB equity value of that five-room flat that they bought, you can see that at the end of this 20-year period, they've paid off the flat, and it's worth maybe anywhere between 46 to 72% of their household net worth. Okay, so that's the punchline of all of this. What are the other lines in here? Well, the blue and purple lines represent their private savings net worth, okay? The difference between the lines is that one of them, the purple line, assumes that they put um, their money, their private savings money, into their flat, and the blue line assumes that all of their private savings is available for financial investments, okay? The reason for that is it's pretty hard to disentangle how much a private savings actually goes into housing investments, but basically the estimate is it's going to be a sizable chunk of your net wealth after about 20 years, okay? 46 to 72%. So that, I think, in a nutshell, is the lived experience of housing wealth, right? My estimate is it might be 42 to 72 percent in this simulation, but that actually corresponds quite nicely in some aspects to estimates elsewhere, Credit Suisse or MSDOS, which puts it at about maybe 40 to 44 percent or so. Okay, so why is housing so favorable for wealth accumulation? Well, basically because housing investments allow you to get very high leverage at very low cost, and it's a very safe asset to invest in in Singapore's context because there's a strong political interest in stabilizing the housing market, unlike maybe other financial assets. Okay, so I think the lived experience of Singapore households is people have successfully used housing to accumulate wealth. So let's return to the question. How does our shared experiences right, share, shape uh, what we want out of housing policy in the present and in the future as well? Over the last 60 years, generations of Singaporeans have experienced huge upgrading in the quality of housing. They've also enjoyed significant wealth accumulation through ownership of HGV flats and private property. But because of these successes, I think there is a sense that expectations have now been set up to be unsustainable, and people want something out of policy that is fundamentally contradictory, right? Singaporeans want affordable and accessible housing, but they want housing to meet their aspirations for upgrading. They want it to meet their aspirations for wealth accumulation, and policy cannot actually meet both of these objectives simultaneously. Okay? And arguably, because of this as well, housing wealth is increasingly a source of inequality, and it's also very hard to monetize for retirement. So in the last minute or so, I just want to talk briefly about what we might want to do in terms of revisiting housing. And I think the basic questions to ask here are, is it desirable that public housing provides a stake in society through this implicit promise of asset accumulation? And is this financial stake from public housing too important 
compared to the value of community and compared to the values of equity and access to housing. So just very briefly, I wonder if policy might want to consider de-emphasizing housing wealth accumulation through adjusting the tax system, which currently privileges housing investments maybe a bit too much, whether we want to maybe shift away from a capital upfront subsidy system towards perhaps subsidies for the use of housing, whether we want to broaden access to desirable public housing even more, even if it means shifting away from this model that you have to own and invest in public housing to live somewhere. And the PLH model, is, uh, as I said, already shows great promise in delinking some of these thorny issues, right? But fundamentally, in re-questioning or revisiting this, I want to see a future of public housing where we see our flats as homes and not as stores of wealth, where we value the stake in our communities as something that binds us together as Singaporeans rather than our hope of capital gains. Okay, so that's all I want to say on this for now. Thank you. Thank you, Walter. Some, uh, some serious analysis with some thoughtful uh, suggestions of a way forward. Uh, our next speaker is Tian Fu. Thanks, uh, Prof. Good morning, and thank you very much for inviting me to talk about this issue on revisit housing. I think there are two challenges that uh, I'm going to talk about today. One is, of course, the housing challenges. I think the second issue is, is the challenge that I'm trying to cover uh, some of the research work that I have done in 10 minutes, so it's very, very limited time. I hope I will be able to cover the information that I hope uh, to achieve. Okay. After more than half a century of na nation buildings and also implementation of home ownership program, public housing in Singapore has made significant impact in solving the acute housing, housing problems. Today's the total public housing stock exceeded about 1 million uh, units. 80% of the residents actually stay in public housing, and 90% uh, of them actually own HDB flat uh, rather than rent. These achievements are remarkable and enviable to many countries facing the housing problem. Singapore public housing market, however, is unique and difficult to be duplicated in other countries. When government in other countries try to provide social housing or public housing uh, to residents, they usually look at the, they're trying to tackle the housing problem for the lowest stratum and also disadvantaged group of about 20% of the residents, where this is a big contrast. Uh, to Singapore housing policy where we attempt, we try to solve the housing need of 80% of the residents. So, uh, if you look at this, where do we move from here? After achieving such a high ownership uh, rate, what are the housing dilemma? I think to talk about this issue, I would like to use this analogy about this uh, Godilo and the tree bear. I suppose many of you have heard about this story. Uh, you know, when the Godilo entered the house and tried the three different polygers, whether it's too hot, too, too cold, or just nice. Uh, from the perspective of Goldilocks, I think she may prefer a bowl of polish with just nice uh, kind of temperature. However, you, look, you ask the three bear whether they prefer hot porridge, cold porridge, or, 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 or just nice temperature porridge. Basically, uh, what it means is that providing a customized kind of policy is very difficult to meet, you know, to, to, to meet different uh, expectations and different tastes of the uh, residents. So our policy of meeting 80% of households uh, probably will attract different kind of, uh, 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 kind of preference and also sorting uh, kind of decision. So uh, with that, actually, let me talk about this 
three housing dilemma. I think if we look at the chart below, this is a typical, uh, what we call the life cycle models. If you look at life cycle, if you look at housing and consumption, we should see this kind of curve where, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, basically, in a typical life cycle, without uncertainty and we, without request motive, uh, household will start to accumulate wealth when we during your working life. And after, when you reach a retirement age, about 65, you should actually start to decumulate uh, it during the retirement to support your consumption when the income is low. However, the large body of evidence and also uh, a lot of evidence better is overseas and other countries show, showing that actually older people do not actually decumulate wealth and actually the decumulation of wealth actually is low in terms of pace. A lot of people still keep to their house and, 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 and this is a particular case where we call if you follow this life cycle policy then uh, households should aim to die with zero wealth, in other words MPV zero. But many people, many evidence shown otherwise. This is typical uh, puzzle, we call it uh, a retirement saving puzzle in economics. So uh, I will look at this policy, three, this dilemma by looking at these three cohorts, if you divide them into three cohorts broadly, uh, younger cohort, middle-aged cohort, and those elderly cohort. And what are the dilemma they face? You know, each of them have different uh, kind of preference, different taste, different problem they face, just like the three bear in the Godilex story. So what do they actually uh, problem they face what the dilemma the younger cohort those who not who have not bought a house they will be asking the question do how do I keep the price affordable will I be priced out of the market how about those who already have their flat how do I preserve the flat value if you look at these two cohort again there are also tension between them between those who have not got a house and those who already have their house I think the the, the tension is between how to keep this balance between the keeping housing affordable on one hand and also making uh, a, a value, preserve the housing value. And the second question you may ask is when this younger cohort move into their middle-aged uh, stage, they will ask the same question. Will my price increase at the same rate as my parent uh, years? You know, because their parent bought a house at much lower price. Whether uh, they will probably ask this question like if a summer is... Do, why do my parents have a bigger house than what I, I have today, even though uh, uh, the, the flat size may not change? And then the third question, which is more critical, is for this group of household, how to balance the retirement need and also the bequest motive. I think if you follow traditional life cycle, as mentioned just now, they should accumulate wealth, they should monetize wealth and to support the, the, the retirement need. But in, in most of the instances, actually, we do not see this decumulation to take place. So what are the implications for, for, for this uh, housing policy? What are the challenges? And uh, as an academic, we, when we do the research, we don't try to put the the cut in front of horses. We, we, I may not have all the answers to all these questions, but I try to share some of this uh, evidence uh, based on what we have uh, uh, done. Uh, try to uncover some, uncover some of the puzzle here. Basically, if you look at this, I think uh, same like uh, what I have shown earlier. Actually, this is a line of the medium housing price, resale housing price, and also the income. As you can see here, without the BTO market, uh, I think housing will be much more uh, difficult for the young couple to own a house. Even with the resale market, as you can see from here, in fact, the prices have gone uh, aligned uh, with the income growth. In fact, you look at the 
home price to income uh, ratio, I think in Singapore we actually keep around four to five times. Uh, compared to in the recent survey by ULI, Shanghai and Hong Kong, I think Shanghai housing price to income affordability is about 35 times, and Hong Kong is about 26.5 times. So what are we talking about, whether housing is affordable in this case? But anyway, uh, let's look at this case. This is always the, the story that distracted a lot of, a lot of uh, people. Uh, when they talk about million-dollar houses, if you look at the transaction, I collected the transaction from 2020 to 2020. If you plot the transaction, the million transaction housing transaction is on the right-hand tail. It's not all the prices are sold in at million dollars. So this actually creates a lot of distraction because of this uh, uh, resale market transaction. I think the other story is very important. Uh, as earlier on, when I say about people asking whether, why do my parents own a bigger house than I? So this is a typical kind of story uh, when we talk about comparing two different cohorts. If you look at this study, on the left-hand exit is actually the ranking of the children, housing wealth, housing value. On the uh, x-axis is the parents' housing wealth. If you look at this, basically the 45 degree rise is in different line. If they are not different inequal, there's equal uh, between the housing wealth, between the core, parent cohort and children cohort, then we should expect the 45% line. If you look at this line, on the left-hand side, 60% the lowest 60% of household with the lower housing wealth, in fact, the children, housing values have grown much bigger, much higher compared to their parents. Basically, this is a story about social mobility, upward mobility. So, public housing provides a channel to enable what we call the social mobility. So, it's very important uh, in this case. The other thing, now let's move on to talk about housing value preservation. Uh, the dilemma, why my will my housing value depreciate? Look at, uh, this is a much more complex issue. When we plot the housing price and building age, this is housing price on the right-hand side and the building age, you can see here there's some uh, marginal decline in the housing price with age gradually, but we are less certain about housing price and age relationship after the certain age for the older housing because of limited transaction data available. Housing, what causes the housing price to decline? There are two possible factors that, uh, uh, that may affect the price decline. One is what we call the functional obsolescence, is depreciation. The second factor is what we call the decaying leases. It's very difficult to decompose the two, but if you look at this case, again, we look at uh, another study we've shown uh, housing depreciation. In fact, the, the public housing price depreciation depreciated at a much lower rate compared to private housing. Why is this so? Because HDB have into, has actually implemented many schemes, neighborhood renewal program, home improvement program, leaf upgrading program, all these actually help to keep pricing functional and also uh, depreciate at a lower rate. I think the issue becomes more critical when we look at what would happen if the housing lease which when the housing age is about 70 years, when the balance lease is about 30 years. This is something that we need to really uh, think about this question more critically because it's very difficult then to segregate the impact between depreciation and decaying leases. This is a question that the government is looking into through the VERSE and other programs. I think due to time constraint, maybe I'll just want to speak, uh, expertise some of this issue about aging. Uh, retirement saving uh, uh, dilemma. Why are younger if we look at this, uh, again, the buyer age and the building age relationship, we do see a positive correlation between the buyer age and young, uh, the building age. In other words, the younger buyers tend to prefer 
newer houses compared to the older one, but we are not very sure for those older ages, old, older household after 45 years and, and beyond, because in this case, if the life cycle uh, uh, model prediction is true, then we should expect this older household to actually choose an older housing and decumulate de 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 some of the wealth. But we do not see that uh, uh, the, uh, the, the relationship in this case. And also, we look at the housing wealth in this case. Uh, if we look at resale price and the buyer age, and we do see the accumulation of housing wealth in the earlier years, but in the later years of this cohort, the older cohort, we do not really see them very clear pattern about decumulation or monetizing some of this wealth. So this also has some impact or implication on how uh, this will affect the, the home lease buyback scheme, reverse mortgages, and, and other kind. Because one important issue here, which we have to deal with carefully, is about bequest motive. Due to time constraint, maybe I just quickly sum out this because I think uh, to explain about this uh, complex issue, we really need to think about the consumption and investment behavior early on. Uh, if you look at the simple life cycle models, if you look at consumption kind of behavior, if you, if you look at the present, people actually price more for the current consumption, current utility of $1 compared to the future utility. Therefore, you see this downward sloping curve. If, if the, con the discovery is constant, we should expect the, the utility to decline over time, people actually pay a lot more for the current consumption compared to future consumption. However, because of investment motive and wealth creation motive, the price actually price much higher than what the model actually predicts as we see from the, the upper line here. So actually this translated into preference for uh, longer leases because of investment motive. If we translate this into what we call the value using the present value model, this is what we see in the housing, housing value model, where we see that con concave curve of value. The longer the lease term, the value actually increase and lower or marginal rate. So marginal rate. However, does the market actually prices as such? Because if you assume that pricing, concave pricing, because we assume a constant discount rate. But in most of the cases, we, do not, we may not actually price a future uh, 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 value lower than the current value because of the investment return. So we've already seen a lot of this example in our private market where we see the premium between the freehold property and leasehold property. If you follow the curve, the difference between the freehold and leasehold property should be around 4% because of the balance curve if you used to estimate this. But if you look at the actual empirical data, the price private uh, uh, freehold property actually traded between 10 to 15% higher than the leasehold property uh, value. What does, what, what explains that? Basically, uh, one of the reasons is actually people have lower discount rate or, expect, or expected risk of rate, uh, rate of risk uh, uh, discount for the very long-term kind of leases. So with that, actually, uh, I'll just due to time, I'll just uh, sum up here because I think by looking at this, we probably need to think about the pricing of the policy uh, houses for the different leases, for different expectations as well. Uh, because the chef, we used to may get it wrong if you just cook the porridge with the assumption that everybody would want to have a hot porridge. So uh, with that, I will, uh, I'll stop here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tianfu, for breaking the housing question into different cohorts and helping us to understand what the, what the challenges are for each cohort. Uh, we are now uh, open for questions from the floor. Um, housing is a 
is a big question, it's very important. Are there any questions for, for the three speakers? I'm sorry. Please go ahead. Uh, keep your questions short, please. Sure. I think there's no one asking. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I'm Eun Yang from Nian Polytechnic. And my question is about balancing the need for using housing as a device for social mobility versus home ownership. Because as the speakers mentioned, right, the housing serves a form, as a form of social mobility for Singaporeans, especially those who are a bit lower income, and also that the government's uh, main intention is for home ownership. So how do you actually balance these two very important aims in terms of designing our housing policy? Yeah, and of course, there has to be a compromise between the two, right? We cannot have asset appreciation while also maintaining that everyone has to have uh, a home for their own needs. Once you take that. Would you like to invite our uh, panelists or experts to share some views? Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. I, I shown earlier on about the, 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 the result where we show that those people who live in the 60 percentile household, actually their housing value is higher than the parents. Remember, there's some social mobility. In fact, in Singapore case, because I think this social mobility has actually very much driven by the economic growth, we don't expect all the housing will increase value uh, uh, without strong fundamental. I think it's really going, I mean, the, the, the effort of HDB and also uh, the economic growth actually play a very important role. And I think about this issue of balancing between home ownership rate and, and we talk about social mobility, or rather I call this wealth accumulation. Uh, it's very important in terms of pricing of this. I think if you price it incorrectly, like just I mentioned at the end of the slide, if, if you didn't get it right, in other words, if you have the X-shaped kind of curve instead of the, the concave curve, usual concave curve, I think that may explain why people find the, the, the prices for short-term leases are much more expensive because the consumption prices are higher than... than for the shorter leases, and then the future uh, uh, price appreciation much higher compared to what the model predict. If that's the case, then when we use the usual concave kind of present value model to predict the price, this will drive the behavior in terms of balancing between consumption and wealth accumulation. Therefore, I think we probably see a lot of these problems when you introduce shorter leases. Why shorter leases are not popular? Is it price? incorrectly or is it the behaviors uh, of this expectation that you know for future price growth that drive people preference yeah. um, so, so I, I have some observations I think maybe to to offer on this um, first I think in the early part of our development and I think all of us have alluded to that I think it was possible to have both right social mobility and home ownership and the reason for that of course is that the the key innovation really of a public housing program is to take resources and surplus land and convert them into high quality affordable public housing which is something in most other cities and countries were not able to do for one reason or another so you can have both mobility and home ownership back then um, I think what I'm trying to point out right is that 
you're reaching a point where achieving both of those gains at the same time actually gets increasingly troublesome or difficult because uh, there is less and less ability to basically take, you might say, surplus land or unused land and just you know, convert it and then uh, give it to Singaporeans and, and let them level up that way. Increasingly, it's about making trade-offs now where you have to choose, okay, is it going to be a forest, is it going to be industrial estate or housing estate or what, right? So that's one part. I think the other part I would suggest, right, and this is in line with revisiting housing, is that perhaps we also need to think a bit more carefully about moving away from a conception of social mobility uh, that inevitably involves ranking, right? Because when we say social mobility, of course, all of us have in our heads, okay, we want people from the bottom groups to level up. All of us want that. But what we're uncomfortable with thinking about is that, okay, if they level up, that also means at some point that some people in the upper groups get displaced. And when you're talking about a resource which is fundamentally limited like land, that displacement does happen. You cannot walk away from it, right? Uh, I showed you earlier that the landed housing uh, portion in Singapore has in fact shrunk over time, and that is because the absolute number of landed housing units is pretty much static in Singapore. It doesn't go up. And so there will be displacement of that, right? And that means that I think the way forward is not think about mobility in terms of, you know, I'm better than you or worse than you or whatever. It's about how do we give everybody uh, adequate, affordable, and good quality housing that meets their needs well. I mean, I think that's the way we, we have to look at it, hopefully. Yeah? I think um, Prof Singh as well as uh, Prof Desera have put their points across uh, very elegantly. And I'd like to go back to the, the question uh, that our student has raised, uh, which is really about how we balance uh, these objectives. I think it's, it was Eun Yang. And in terms of uh, home ownership, that remains a core focus. And the social mobility that uh, the two professors have talked about, I think that's really more a function of expectations that have developed uh, among Singaporeans over the years. Uh, and I think that if we, were, if we were to define it very rigidly in terms of, uh, say, the floor area of the flat, uh, I think uh, this is something that does need to be revisited as Singapore matures. Uh, in fact, uh, I've shared just now uh, also in my opening remarks that as we develop as a city and as a country, actually more and more of our towns are going to be mature. The lines already are blurring between what we have today defined as non-mature and mature estates. And so I think um, the way we define success, the degree to which we define a person's success and peg it to the type of home we live in, and then the way in which we think of the hierarchy of desirability amongst different homes, I think that would change because the offerings to Singaporeans will be different, especially as we plan our towns better, as the amenities uh, and the conveniences of living in different parts of Singapore, I think the differences are going to narrow over time. So that, I think, requires a rethinking uh, of uh, what is meant by social mobility. But in the meantime, government focuses on owner occupation. That's what we focus on. And uh, as I've also shared, owner occupation, really you think about it, it's, it's actually a hyphenation of two words. So there is the treating the flat as a home and also 
there are flexibilities that come with ownership. And that's also something which we, we honour and we want to make that available to our uh, flat owners. And of course, from time to time, there will be some adjustments. But this twin focus on ownership as well as occupation will continue. Thank you. Uh, there's a question, please. Hi, hi. my name is Stephanie Yuanthio. Um, we've been talking about wealth accumulation, uh, social mobility, and the availability of public housing, which is important. I'm wondering whether that is really, those twin parallel op motivations is really a sacred cow that we at some point need to decouple and maybe kill. Singapore is becoming an international hub. That means not only that our foreigners coming into our country, it means our young people are moving out. Um, a lot of young people, their social, their, their social and family values is changing as well. A lot of them just don't want to get married. They don't necessarily want to have children. If you only have housing for those who are singles once they're 35 and above, it means that if it becomes impossible for me to own a place, um, the only place I can afford to own would be an HDB, and I'm not eligible for that until I get married. Um, and the question now is not, will you marry me? It's, I beat the oh my. Um, so, so, so if, that is really, if that is really the question, then you, have, you leave me no choice but to go and live someplace else. Um, and then the world becomes my oyster. How do we make sure that we keep people in Singapore or we keep people wanting to come back to Singapore after five or seven years? And, and I think maybe we should really focus public housing on the housing aspect as opposed to the um, wealth accumulation aspect. As SMS said, that should really just be a byproduct. Um, but I do think that we, we should really look at, while we say, yes, principally owner-occupied, should we be looking at some longer-term leases for young people who might want to live in a sort of co-working, a co-living environment, um, you know, as they develop their careers and eventually want to own something? Please. This question has uh, come up uh, from time to time, and I think it does reflect some changing uh, preferences amongst the young. Uh, and also, I think there was, pr prior to COVID, a period where uh, to some of our more um, uh, successful young people, uh, it, the, the level of rents was such that they could contemplate a different lifestyle, perhaps renting on the open market and living apart from their parents uh, for a while. Now, we already have a rental market. We understand right now that there is pressure, but as I've shared, this is going to ease. The question, I think, from a policy perspective is, should government come in to provide or get involved in subsidized uh, rental for uh, families or for uh, uh, individuals who might not uh, actually be uh, facing financial difficulties, but who would like to rent, but they want a bit of help uh, from the state. Uh, and I think then this is a question of, do the subsidies work best in coming into this area, or should we focus that on owner occupation? 
And I think so far we have been focusing our subsidies, our grants on helping Singaporeans buy their home, helping them onto the home ownership journey. And as for rental, we have been focusing that subsidized rental on the smaller number of households who have difficulties. So that's how we have been, uh, how we have been uh, prioritizing uh, our limited resources. And of course, this is something which uh, does come up in our housing conversations. It is something that we've been hearing. Now, uh, and, and it's something which we will consider views uh, very, very carefully, but I've explained uh, the reason why our priorities are the way they are for now. So I think the reasons themselves are also compelling. As for the aspirations of singles, this is also something that we've been hearing from. And in fact, uh, we have over the years relaxed restrictions on uh, singles who wish to purchase homes. Uh, and we have, for instance, expanded the range of uh, resale. Now there's no restrictions on what type of resale uh, that uh, singles uh, may buy, eligible singles may buy. Uh, and also we've opened up, although in a more restricted way, uh, BTO uh, purchase for singles. And this is something which uh, we uh, will continue to hear from singles on. Uh, and we do have to uh, calibrate quite carefully, bearing in mind the overall demand for housing. Do you want to? Thank you. Uh, any additional comments from? Uh, I mean, to address the issue about consumption and wealth accumulation, uh, kind of trade-off, I think we, we, we look at the historical data between uh, housing age, not building age, and also housing and the buyer age. In fact, we do see that there's a preference of this upward sloping for younger households. In other words, this younger household, I mean, if you just purely look at consumption, which they should prefer shorter leases, but I think uh, we look at the historical data, a lot of these younger households, they still prefer uh, to have a longer leases. Therefore, we see this positive correlation between buyer age and also the building age. Or the, 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 uh, but for the older uh, uh, retiree, uh, senior, senior people, they actually should consume less and things they should be downsizing, but we do not see that behavior because uh, if that's the case, then we should see uh, that uh, a lot of them should downsize or, or convert their wealth into the, the shorter leases, or older houses. You know, that, that coincides with the policy about home for life uh, kind of policy where we can buy a house where you can live up to 95 instead of buying a brand new 99 year lease. I think that got, I think it probably have a lot to do with the pricing. If we price correct, maybe we can actually change people's behavior. I think if you look at the lease buyback scheme, it's one of the issues. Why the take-up rate for lease buyback scheme is low? Uh, there are many reasons. I think, of course, bequest motives is one of the reasons people want to request their house to their children. I think the other issue is the pricing about the, the current lease they are consuming and the future leases, you know, the balance leases. So I think this may require a lot more uh, re-examination to this issue as well, to change or to drive the behavior. Okay, so, so I think there are maybe two factors behind our current housing system policy, which is uh, obviously structurally favors traditional families, right? I mean, one, of course, is that that is the group which in most societies is considered to be somehow the most deserving or the most important to be prioritized for housing. And I think it's actually hard to think of any major market globally where there isn't some kind of priority attached to families, particularly if they have young children. They usually prioritize everywhere. The other part of, the other factor, of course, maybe a bit more implicit, is that by setting or creating a certain policy framework, 
you wonder whether you could get an outcome, which is what you want, and the outcome that what Singapore wants, of course, is to have more families with young children, right? I mean, that may be more explicit or more implicit. It's up to you, but that's actually uh, part of the policy as well, although it's an empirical question as to whether it does actually encourage fertility or not. Uh, but to take a step back, right, I do think that it is worth thinking about, I agree, I think it's worth thinking about whether the housing system meets broader and maybe a new conception of social objectives. If it is the case in Singapore that younger Singaporeans want to be more mobile, if younger Singaporeans want more privacy, um, if, they, you know, if they want to remain rooted to Singapore, but they feel they can't do that right now because they're not eligible to buy public housing and they can't afford to, to rent an open market and so on, I think it is worth thinking about whether we need to revisit some aspects of how we think about our public housing uh, subsidy systems. But in doing so, I think we have to be careful at first. We don't deprioritize somehow families with children because that remains very important. And second, I think it would be important to think about ensuring that people don't, uh, you might say, unfairly benefit from this, right? So, for example, right, if I were to redesign the system to give people more subsidies for using housing rather than just buying it, I would also have to make sure that somebody who gets to take advantage of that over a number of years doesn't then get the same benefit as a family when they eventually do decide to buy housing. So I think working all this out and giving people affordable housing while not breaking the budget, I think, is, is the critical thing. But I would, you know, I, I would be in favor of rethinking this a bit. Lah. Yeah. So we, we take a break from uh, investment and consumption and housing prices to consider this question from Kalpana, which is, which is one of the top questions. Uh, the question is, are there plans to implement policies that encourage more mixing be between locals and foreigners? So here's a question on social integration, diversity in neighbourhoods. May I invite you to also consider remarking on this besides the I didn't choose this aspect. because I'm a sociologist, it's top voter. <laughs> Please, the, no, no, go ahead. Perhaps uh, SMS Sim, you want to tackle this? Well, in terms of, um, uh, let's take a look at the question. That's the one, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, we, while we don't have residential ethnic enclaves in Singapore, the combination of private public housing for locals mm. and high immigration has meant that we have very different areas mm. that are predominantly inhabited by foreigners and locals. Are there plans to implement policies that encourage more mixing mm. between locals and foreigners? Okay. This is crucial to positive integration. Right. Integration is important uh, in order to make sure that in Singapore we can live in harmony uh, regardless of uh, different backgrounds. Now, when applied to the public housing uh, context, I think that we have to be uh, very mindful that there is a fundamental distinction between the public housing market, HDB, uh, as well as the private uh, housing market because in HDB it is part of our subsidized uh, uh, program, uh, subsidized program to uh, help Singaporeans own their homes and this is why foreigners can't buy HDB 
they may be able to rent, but they can't buy. And I think that the extent to which we have people living side by side, that's always possible, but this distinction, I think, is one that has, this ownership-based distinction uh, has to remain. And uh, I think I will keep it as that, uh, but of course, Kalpana may have other uh, measures that she's interested in finding out more about, and uh, perhaps she can, she can uh, raise a follow-up question. But I think this is the most important distinction to bear in mind when we talk about uh, the, the role or you know, where foreigners and, uh, and locals live. We don't stop foreigners from renting mm. uh, in, in our HGB, but ownership, there is a clear distinction. Yes, there's, there's a question from... Go ahead. Oh, hi. My name is Qijie. So I have a question, um, which is, will we ever consider severing the link between investment and housing? Because uh, this is going to sound controversial, but I think in general, Singapore housing is actually very affordable and super cheap if you compare and contrast against other Asian cities, and if we are going to get more people into Singapore, if Singapore is going to become an Asian hub, or increasingly so, then there's just going to be more people coming into Singapore. And regardless, even if you don't let foreigners purchase HDBs, there's a linkage between rental yields and prices, and the free market will equilibrate. So, okay. uh, decoupling uh, investment and consumption. Yeah, I'm happy to take this, but uh, <laughs> perhaps I give the opportunity to the mm. two professors first. Okay, yeah. maybe I'll talk about Kapana question about local and foreigner, then also about this foreigner. I think the question here, I think there's always this, uh, if you leave it to free market, there's always this preference for social network. You want to live near your people who share the same, uh, any group, race, language, and so on. People actually pay a little bit more premium if you live in the uh, particular area with a lot more, but the Koreans kind of uh, restaurant, Chinese restaurant. I think you see this happen in, in the private market. But how actually this can be done at the you know, at the local level is, uh, I would call this issue about segregation. Instead of like trying to integrate them, we want to make sure there is no segregation and also how to make sure this is inclusive. I think we, while we cannot actually uh, stop foreign buyers from actually buying our private houses, I think how to make sure that all our waterfronts and city centre housing are not actually desegregated or only uh, uh, become the backyard of these rich people. I think our PRH public, public uh, prime location housing is one model where we're actually trying to actually bring uh, public housing into this prime location, waterfront housing. So, but again, I think uh, while we're not able to control the, the social mix or integration at the block level or even the precinct level, but at least in the community level or neighborhood level, with this PLH, we'll probably be able to actually reduce the segregation and make sure there will be more inclusive kind of option for people who prefer or who like to live with the waterfront if they can afford. Uh, and uh, 
Okay, so, so you know, I, I will say that I think structurally, one reason for segregation uh, is actually, you know, maybe not, um, of course, part of it, of course, is that uh, foreigners can't buy public housing in Singapore uh, until they, they naturalize, of course. But the other part of it, you know, is that our policy for foreign immigration is extremely selective. And that's actually a large part of what is going on here. Now, for temporary foreign immigration, it may not be as selective. Temporary meaning people who come here and work permits and so on. Uh, and even employment passes to some extent. But the moment we're considering somebody for permanent residency and assimilation, that's when you become very selective and you're taking like the top 5 or 10% of the distribution. And when you get that top 5 or 10%, it is very natural, as Stenfu uh, mentioned, that uh, when, you know, when, when they're looking at their location choices, even if they suddenly then become eligible to buy HDB, because they are very wealthy, very high income and so on, they tend to go and buy private. And they may form enclaves and things of that sort. But it's all really just positive selection, right? And even if you look at the local housing market, and this is something I think people maybe were not so aware of until recently, you, I think, I think you see increasing segregation even among locals uh, when you come to HEB housing versus private housing. If you look, for example, at the distribution of ethnicity uh, in Singapore, you will see some remarkable changes over the last couple of decades as you go into the 2020 census in terms of ethnic distribution and public versus private housing. So I think the signs are all there that it is actually increasingly difficult to hold people together because by nature, people tend to have this tendency towards segregation. Um, how do we address it? I mean, this is actually a huge topic. I think we're beyond our ability to, to look at today. But um, I mean, it's, it's probably going to have to be something along the lines of offering more affordable options integrated throughout Singapore, especially in areas which uh, in the past we might have reserved only for high-value private housing. And I think PLH, as we've mentioned, mm. is a great way of doing that. But probably more needs to be done as well. So I'd like to uh, address this question about, you know, uh, severing uh, consumption from investment. We are in a period of heightened anxiety over prices and affordability. And when we are very worried about prices, I think it's quite natural to look for solutions that can bring prices down very quickly. And, uh, and I think this is the reason why people are a bit more receptive than usual to ideas that fundamentally question the model of public housing that we have. Uh, I'd like to share some quotes uh, that were actually said in Parliament by a few MPs and also a remark that was, that was made uh, by, by a minister. Um, now, the first MP says, uh, demand for new HDB flats exploded. Those who already own HDB flats are eager to upgrade to a new flat first-time house owners, fearing that they will be left out in the stampede, join the queue and wait with concern and impatience. They complain about the long waiting time, and first-time house owners and younger Singaporeans are fearful that new flats are becoming less affordable. On the one hand, I'm impressed that the HDB has been able to meet the challenge of providing better quality housing. On the other hand, I'm not sure if this is good policy. Second MP. Sir, there is a general concern among young couples that HDB is not providing affordable housing for them. Prices of current five-room flats, five-room apartments, and executive condominiums are out of their reach. HDB flat prices, including resale flats, have been rising rapidly in the past few years. There is a real anxiety that their earnings and savings will never catch up with the prices of these properties, and the gap gets wider very fast. 
Being affordable means the prices need to be about 60 to 70% of what is being sold at present. Third MP, many young couples, particularly those planning to set up a family, are indeed frustrated with a long three-year wait for their flats, sometimes longer depending on the area. When I asked them why they were frustrated, they replied, cannot get married because I have no flat. When I asked them why they delay to get married, they replied, I do not have a flat and cannot plan to have children, and so forth. And in the reply, the minister made a comment, made an observation, and he said, like some of you, I have Singaporeans coming up to me and say that they are worried that their children cannot afford to own homes in the future. Now, this sounds like a debate or an exchange in Parliament that could have happened just yesterday, or in February, for that matter. But it actually took place in 1996. <laughs> and um, the three MPs uh, are, are now retired, uh, and the minister was uh, former minister for uh, national development, Mr. Lim Hung Kiang. So uh, this, I think, speaks to Walter's point, which is, we have a housing policy that I think Singaporeans are quite proud of, but at the same time, you know, it's, it receives regular criticisms. Uh, I've looked up uh, more than 30 years of com Committee of Supply debates for MND, and it is pretty much like that uh, every year. In fact, some huck back to the good old days, uh, you know, when we were just starting, uh, to, to, to build uh, our, our public housing uh, policy. And uh, did, did Singaporeans or did our MPs uh, praise uh, the HDB then? Actually, I, I have a, uh, a quote, I think, uh, and this was from um, former minister E.W. Barker. Uh, this was back in uh, 1974. And he, he was responding to a litany of, uh, you know, un unhappy statements from MPs, and he said, you know, perhaps a little forlornly, to be fair to the housing board, and I have not heard one good word about the board in this house, it is doing a good job. I can only imagine the, the sentiments of the minister, of the former minister, when he was saying that, and that was back in 1974. Um, now, actually, what, what does this uh, tell us? Because I've been reflecting also on the, on the anxieties, on the feedback that I've been getting. Uh, also being an MP, I hear from my constituents uh, all the time. And I think that if indeed, you know, whether it was back in 1996 or any of the many years in which we were anxious about housing prices and affordability, it was really true that at that point in time, back in 1996, uh, that's, that's uh, a few decades ago, if people were not able to buy flats then, then we would not be able to maintain the 90% home ownership rates, which we have consistently maintained over the years. So what's happening here? How is it possible that, you know, in cycles, so many cycles, we're worried about housing prices, and yet at the same time, somehow um, we have been able to maintain high ownership? And that's not to mention looking at, for instance, the percentage of people, and that's a high percentage, who are able to pay for their housing mortgages with little or no cash. And also, the other housing affordability ratios that I mentioned earlier, whether it is HPI or MSR. I, I think there are at least two reasons why. First, housing is a very important purchase for each and every one of us. I think just about everyone in the room 
is probably a homeowner. And if you think back to buying the first home for yourself, um, are, were you hunting for the lowest cost unit or were you hunting for the best unit amongst those that you can afford, that you can just barely afford, you were looking for the best one? Chances are it was the latter. Now, we, we, uh, we urge financial prudence, but I think it is human nature for homeowners to buy the best that they can afford. What does this mean? This means that we're not really going to notice the more affordable options if those more affordable options are not attractive to us, but we will be thinking all the time about the units that we can probably just afford or maybe even stretch a little bit to afford. But when we've bought the unit, we've lived in it for a while, and over time, uh, I think the general experience of Singaporean households is that incomes will rise uh, gradually. Looking back, and when they compare what they bought it for and what the unit is going for in the market at that point in time, then it looks like what we bought it for was comparatively affordable. So I think affordability in the Singaporean mind has an element of hindsight. There's a second reason why I think it is so, which is that while we do seek to make our HDB public housing affordable, we have to also bear in mind that it is for 80% of the population. And the income range for the population, for 80% of the population, is actually fairly wide. Uh, so what this means is, if you look at the range of flats uh, that's available at every launch, now if you are a buyer who has above average income, very good income, you might look at the launch and think, well, quite a lot of units, maybe even all units, are within your housing budget. But if your income level is not quite there, well, you're going to look at a launch and you're going to see some units that are within your housing budget, and you're going to see some units that are beyond your housing budget. And the units that are perhaps beyond the housing budget of such a buyer, I think they do tend to be the very uh, eyeball-grabbing type of flats, the very desirable ones. They tend to be the big flats, large flats in the mature estates. And I think this is what drives conversation and it is something which I think then helps to explain why we have what Walter has very elegantly explained as a paradox. Now, so I think that knowing that this paradox has been with us for many years, then I think when we analyze what's happening, we have to ask ourselves, is the system broken? If the system is broken, we have to fix it. We have to repair it. That's very clear. And the government would have an obligation to do that. But if it's something that is cyclical, and in this case, I think we are all very clear that we are in a crunch because of the inordinate uh, delays caused by COVID-19 and also the impact that it has, it has had on people who, because of urgent need, then they move to the resale market and then that causes an increase in resale prices as well as rents. So I think we understand the causes uh, for this. And if this is cyclical in nature, then I think we also know what to do which is we have to increase or make sure that supply grows in tandem with demand. And that's exactly what we're doing, and we're starting to see the effects of that. And taking a historical perspective, uh, we should note that the quality of housing and the quality of neighbourhoods and the quality of transportation 
and different kinds of amenities within the neighborhood, the HDB neighborhoods, have, have improved drastically. And for that, I think we should thank the HDB. Um, so th thank you very much uh, for participating in this forum. <laughs>